Derek Dreyer is the director of the Rosenbach Museum and Library in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thanks. It's great to be with you. The man, Rosenbach. Perhaps you could give us a, a thumbnail of biography of this great book collector. I'd be pleased to. When we talk about the man, Rosenbach, we invariably mean Dr. Rosenbach, Abraham Simon Wolf Rosenbach, who was a Ph.D. in English, and as soon as he got his degree, he started calling himself the doctor, and everyone else did too. So we, we usually speak of the doctor. He had lots of other nicknames, such as A.B. and Rosie. There were actually two men at the beginning. There was the doctor, and there was his older brother, Philip. Okay. And that's really where the story starts. Philip was born in 1863. The doctor was born in 1876. Philip was a dry goods salesman, reasonably successful, and had ambitions to become something more than a dry goods salesman. And he put his younger brother, A.B., through school. A.B. went to Penn and studied English got his bachelor's in 1898 and finished his Ph.D. in 1901. How come the parents didn't put him through? Well, um, I think it was viewed as a family-wide responsibility, and Philip was the one who was earning a good salary at that time. Quite a bit older, too. Obviously. He was quite a bit yeah. older. Yeah. He was 13 years older. And he wanted to have a bigger business. He wanted to become better known, more successful. And A.B. had an idea of a way to do that. and Kind of a more prestigious uh, enterprise, too. A more prestigious enterprise as well, absolutely. He wanted to be seen as a gentleman. A.B. had an idea for a way they could get that. He said, in essence, let's form a company together. You, Philip, can sell fine and decorative arts the things you've always been interested in. I'll sell books and manuscripts. Those are the things that I know. Together, it'll be a great success. By fine and decorative arts, uh, you're talking. What are you talking about? Anything from uh, print that you might purchase and hang on the wall could be quite inexpensive to a very fine painting, to a chandelier to illuminate the room, to a neoclassical sarcophagus you might put in your garden to a very fine chest of drawers. The kind of furnishings, basically. The furnishings. Yeah. Philip cared about how things looked. Sounds a bit like William Morris. Was he, was he into Morris at all? He was a little bit. Um, they collected books of that era. Philip certainly had very English taste. He wanted to be seen not just as a gentleman, but as an English gentleman. Okay. That, that was, to him, the, the highest goal. Anglophile, then. Yeah. He cared about the way things looked. His brother, A.B., cared about content, the way things read, what was inside them. And they did decide to found a business. In 1903, they started a company, which they conveniently called the Rosenbach Company, and they began offering books and manuscripts and fine and decorative arts. This was an unusual combination, so it was not an instant success. People were not used to finding fine arts and books in the same place, and Americans weren't actually used to finding books 
period. Mm. There were not a lot of people building libraries at the time. Mm. Uh, there were a few. People like J.P. Morgan were already building great libraries, and there were universities doing that. Mm. But very few private collectors. This is where one of the doctor's special gifts came in. He sounds a bit pretentious calling himself a doctor right out of university. Well, I don't think it was unusual at the time, but there's no question he was proud of the academic standing he had. He wanted to use that title to establish himself, so there, there may be a, a little bit of arrogance in that. He was a young man at the time, and he needed to show that he knew what he was doing, so it, it gave him a little more heft. The book doctor. The book doctor. If you walked into his shop, he could tell you amazing things about books and manuscripts. And this is how he became so successful. He didn't just say, this is really old, mm. or this is really rare. He would get you really excited about something. He would tell you, we've got here three or four or five different original manuscripts, each a handwritten piece of history or literature. And he conveyed to you the notion that if you rearranged those pieces, you put one in front of the other, you began to think about what they meant, you were in essence writing the history books. So he got private collectors thinking that by building a collection, they were writing history, they were influencing history. And people loved this idea. They weren't just buying something that was old, something that was rare, they were buying something because they were becoming collectors. And as collectors, they were going to influence the course of history. It's a very grand notion, but it makes a lot of sense. You need to drill down into it, because I don't understand it right now. Okay. A lot of people look at history as a kind of chain-link series of events. One thing led to the next, led to the next, led to the next, and it's all cut and dried, and there's no interpretation necessary. Everything is very clean. Well, history is written That's, by the victors. Yes. But history is never cut and dried, and it's never a simple chain link of events. History is a muddy series of conjectures, and victors, of course, do get the chance to write the lasting histories, but there are many other histories out there. When you're looking at the original documents of history, you start to get a very different picture. By collecting those and arranging those items within your collection you are creating a new perspective on history. You are, in essence, writing the history, assembling the documents and pieces of it. And presenting them in a fashion that you see uh, fit. Right. Yes, although, again, if you're collecting, you may or may not allow scholars in to view the material. The point is that, that these are unique, or there'd be a small number of them, so mm -hmm. that they'd be serving as the gatekeepers to history, or the gatekeepers to the sources that history is built upon. That's a fair point, but a number of the customers the doctor had went on to create libraries that are now publicly accessible libraries, and the doctor actually pushed them very hard to do that. His best customers were people like the Wideners, the Houghtons, the Folgers, Huntington, Frick, these are the names that you associate now with our nation's great research libraries. I'll give you an example of some of the messiness of history just from our own collections. We have a copy of a draft of the Declaration of Independence, and it's a draft that Jefferson was working on, although this draft is not in his hand. 
The draft includes a passage that would have led to the abolition of slavery as part of the Declaration of Independence. So in 1776, this is something that Jefferson was thinking about, saw as a goal. So does this, does this draft include some sort of section where he indicates that all men shall be equal under the Correct. law? This is what you have in, this is in what your we hands. Have. And then that was subsequently taken out of the document, right. the final. Exactly. It appears to have been Franklin. We give Franklin credit for doing everything in this country. Franklin realized that it was going to be difficult to get the Declaration ratified. With that, with that clause in it. Right. right. It seems to have been at his instance that it was dropped just to be able to get the larger document ratified. Interesting. And of course, it took another 75 years to come back to it. And a lot of bloodshed. Yes. Uh, what you're suggesting, then, is without your document, then, I mean, there's a, there's a few others, I imagine, but without that interesting piece of... Uh, it's not trivia. It's not trivia. It shows Jefferson's ideals. Although he didn't and put them in practice himself. But no, he didn't. And we have another document in the collection that shows that. We have two lists in Jefferson's hand from the early 1790s. The lists reflect the names of slaves at two of his estates. So we see that Jefferson, the public politician, was very high-minded and idealistic. Mm-hmm. We see that Jefferson, the private man, was less so. It was very practical. So it shows us that any attempt to categorize Jefferson as either a liberator or someone who supported the status quo is difficult. You need to gather the documents, you need to consider all sorts of different circumstances, and then form your own opinion about his place in history. And when you have original documents at your disposal, that's exactly the kind of history you can do. Uh, just to summarize, then, you have, for example, those two documents that are sort of contradictory that would allow you to read into his character and make some an estimate of the, of the person. That's exactly without right. those... And I think this was uh, one of the greatest gifts Dr. Rosenbeck had. When you stepped into his store, he could convey to you his passion for collecting. He made you want to become a collector, too. As you say, this grand ambition to not write history, but to be the possessor of of what history was made from. He wanted to be a builder of libraries, not just a dealer and seller of things. He wanted to be seen as an advisor, not as a dealer. And by helping you build a collection, whatever your interest was, He was serving as an advisor and friend to you. He wasn't just doing your bidding at auctions. He was offering his expertise as well as... He was offering a service that people eagerly consumed. The first great customer that Dr. Rosenbach had was Harry Elkins Widener. Harry was a Harvard student who was from the Philadelphia area. His family had made enormous sums of money following the Civil War running streetcar lines through another whole series of businesses they had, all of which were monopolies. They were perhaps the richest family in America at the time. They had virtually limitless wealth. So everywhere Harry or his parents went, people fawned over them. But when Harry stopped into Dr. Rosenbach's store, he could have a conversation with the doctor about literature, which was a budding interest of his at Harvard. 
he could learn from the doctor why certain editions of books were interesting, why they were harder to find. And the collecting bug bit him. And he found in Dr. Rosenbeck, again, not just someone who was happy to sell him things, but someone who wanted to advise him on building a collection that meant something. So he became a very eager customer of the Rosenbeck Company. It's almost like uh, having a professor. It is. You a mentor. To, you get to take home the class materials. You're mm-hmm. not just hearing about ideas in a lecture. You actually get to join the treasure hunt and try to go find things. The doctor would find things for Harry, and Harry went off to find things for himself. He started collecting English rare books. We have a very touching postcard in the collection that Harry Widener sent the doctor from England, where he went on one collecting trip with his parents. And he wrote to say he had visited Quaritch's and Mag's and all of the great London book dealers, and that he had purchased a number of treasures, and he couldn't wait to share them with Dr. Rosenbach. Which is what it's about as a, as a collector, isn't it? Absolutely. It's, 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 it's not a, just a private pleasure, it's sharing it. And it's not quite bragging, it's sort of, look what I got. Uh, it's a sharing of energy that feeds on itself and makes both sides in that transaction very, very happy. Harry acquired the rare 1598 edition of Bacon's Essays, among other things, on that trip. This was a very hard book to find, and he couldn't wait to show the doctor because the doctor had been urging him for quite some time to find this book for his collection as one of the cornerstones of his collection. How how much would he have had to pay for it back then, and where to get it? Well, I don't actually know. He bought it in London. Books were not all that expensive at the time. Yeah, they were often lit, sort of sitting around in in dusty uh, alcoves and these eccentric... Well, just, there weren't many people collecting them, um, certainly not in America. In, in Europe, there were more people collecting them. There was a longer history of building libraries. But Harry acquired this book. He must have paid a pretty good, pretty good price for it. So he's noting that he's acquired this book, among other things, in his postcard to Dr. Rosenbach, and concludes by saying something like, I, I can't wait to show you what I found. My family and I sail home in three weeks on a new boat called the Titanic. Oh, dear. <laughs> so, that bloody Titanic kind of raises its miserable head in so many places, doesn't it, or hull? It had an enormous effect on the history of book collecting in America, uh, which is one of the lesser-known aspects of that tragedy. Because, Of course, Harry went down, and Harry's father went down. What about the book? Harry's books obviously went down as well. But Harry's mother survived. Harry's mother got a spot in one of the lifeboats. And some months later, she contacted Dr. Rosenbach and said, I understand my son was collecting books. I want you to finish the library he wanted to build. Wow. And Dr. Rosenbach was only too happy to begin doing this. He spent over $100,000 on books in the first month of that commission. And I can tell you $100,000 would buy you a lot of nice books today. In 1912, it bought you the beginnings of a big library. And over the course of the next year, that's exactly what Dr. Rosenbeck did. He built what is now the Widener Library at Harvard. That established a model that was followed many times during the decade and really the two decades that followed. So in the teens and the 20s, others that had virtually limitless wealth were going to Dr. Rosenbach specifically because they wanted him to build a library. 
So this is how we came in contact with Henry Huntington and Henry Folger and others who wanted to invest significant wealth in building libraries. The yeah. collecting bug had bit them too. Interesting. And it was a great time to be building a library because after World War I ended, we saw a huge sea change in the kinds of things that were available in America. Europeans were object-rich and cash-poor, so entire libraries started being shipped to America. And all of a sudden, at the beginning of the 20th century, Americans were building libraries in a way that they had not done previously and could not have imagined doing. And that goes back in part to the sinking of the Titanic. I'm speaking with Derek Dreyer, who's the director of the Rosenbach Museum and Library in Philadelphia. So we're now post-World War One. They've been in business for 15 years. Business is very successful. It, it sounds like it. And it's still this funny mix with the older brother, Philip, selling fine and decorative arts. Yeah. And the younger brother, Abraham, Dr. Rosenbach, selling books and manuscripts. But now there's distinct sense that while Philip is selling more in terms of volume, the doctor is the one who's starting to build an international reputation for selling items of the highest quality. And people are seeking him out as an advisor to help build their libraries. You know, the the fun thing about this story, uh, again, is here's a man who's found his passion and he's getting other people to pay for him to be able to go out and do what he loves to do the the most, which is to seek out these... Which is to buy books. And yeah. he was ruthless when buying books. You would approach him as someone who wanted to sell him a book. And you would say, Dr. Rosenbach, I, I have this book. Would you like to buy it? He would always ask, what's your price? First. He would never offer you something. He would make you decide what it was worth. And, of course, you couldn't possibly know. Yeah, because there's no uh, ABE books back then. No, there wasn't. There was no way for you to figure out what that book was worth. So let's just say he acquires a certain book from you for $20, which wouldn't have been a bad price in 1915. He then sees a copy of that book at an auction. And let's just say it's estimated at $20. What he would do once he got into the auction room was very interesting. As soon as the auctioneer announced the opening bid, Dr. Rosenbank would start jumping up and down. He was a very small man and waving his arms to attract attention. And then he would announce a bid to the auctioneer that was completely, insanely high. So if the opening bid, again, was $20, he would start screaming, $100. Two hundred dollars. He would yell out a price that was so high that a silence would fall on the auction room. Everyone would turn around and look at him. And this had one wonderful result of him making headlines every time he appeared at auction. We have a stack of newspaper clippings with the headline, Philadelphia Dealer Sets World Record. And now we think back to the fact that he's got two of these books. He paid a very high price for one of them at auction, and he bought the other one from you, the innocent customer, for $20. Now he can offer each of these copies for something close to the $200 price because he's got lots of customers who are eager to build libraries. And it's on record at the higher price. So he bought and sold like a pirate. Mm -hmm. He was terrific at 
manipulating the book market in a way that brought him the most desirable items at good prices by and large, but gave the public the sense that he was always paying record prices. So you knew that when Dr. Rosenbach offered you something for a book, you were getting an excellent price. Even if you weren't. Even if you weren't. Mm -hmm. And the reason I can sleep at night knowing the way he worked is that he was very public-minded in the end. The people who built the biggest and most important libraries were invariably urged to create something public out of them. By him. By him. Mm -hmm. We know the names Folger and Huntington and Widener and others. Those led to libraries that are now public. Less well-known are some of the stories of individual purchases that he helped to transact that then became public. And I'll tell you the story of probably the most famous item he ever bought and sold, and that's the manuscript for Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. There was a real Alice, a real little girl mm-hmm. named Alice. Little, was it? Her last name was Little, yes, Alan. Little yes. Alice Little Hargreaves mm-hmm. um, was her later married name. She was on a boat ride with Mr. Dodson in the 1850s and heard this remarkable tale and later urged him to write it down for her. She had enjoyed it so much. He wrote down that tale in his beautiful handwriting, and he illustrated the tale with drawings of his own. And this manuscript was passed around among friends in the early 1860s, and everyone loved it. And his friends urged him to publish it. And so he sought out a publisher who was willing to do this for him, He settled on Macmillan's. He agreed to pay for the entire publication. And the publication history is also interesting, but I I don't want to digress on that. Once the book was published, the manuscript was forgotten. But Alice kept that manuscript. And late in life, she had to sell it. This was in the late 20s. She had been predeceased by her two sons, and she had tax bills to settle that she couldn't afford. She was forced to sell everything she owned at an auction at Sotheby's. From personal items that must have been heartbreaking for her to part with, including her wedding ring, to literary treasures like first editions of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and the manuscript. Now, Dr. Rosenbach loved manuscripts. He loved them much more than printed books because if you had a printed book, someone else might own another copy of the same thing. And someone else might own yet another copy. And before you knew it, there were lots of copies out there, and the thing wasn't rare. But if you had a manuscript, you knew there was only one of them. He wanted manuscripts. These are the things he recommended most to his customers that they buy, and they're also the things he collected for himself. So Dr. Rosenbeck went to the Alice auction in London, And he watched as item after item was sold and purchased a few things for himself. The Alice Manuscript now comes up at auction, and Dr. Rosenbach is watching as the British Library tries to acquire this masterpiece, but fails to. There are too many other people bidding. And having refrained from bidding, initially, because he wanted the British Library to have a chance. Once he sees them drop out, Dr. Rosenbach joins the bidding. He eventually wins the prize. He buys the Alice Manuscript 
for about 15,000 pounds. would have been about $75,000 at the time. A world record price for a literary manuscript. This is late 1928. He has no customer in mind. He has gone far beyond not only what he should have paid, but far beyond what he could actually afford. His business was very highly leveraged in the late 20s. But he rides a tidal wave of publicity home. Newspapers term him the man who bought Alice, and there are newsreels made of him disembarking from the ship. Within two weeks of arriving in America with the Alice manuscript, he's found a buyer. And not just found a buyer, but found a buyer who's willing to pay twice what he paid to acquire this treasure. I'm speaking with Derek Dreyer, who's the director of the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia. And we're talking about Dr. Rosenbach's purchase of the manuscript of Alice in Wonderland. He's purchased it, he's back in the States, he's doubled his money. He's doubled his money, masterful publicist that he was. He was able to find a buyer within just a few weeks of returning. And the buyer is someone local. It's Eldridge Johnson, who lived in Camden. He was the heir to the RCA Victor fortune. Now, do you think that Rosenbach delivered the manuscript to him promptly? Of course not. He explains to Johnson that what he wants Johnson to do is pay to have a special display case built, a glass vitrine that would have little levers on the outside so people could walk up to it and turn the pages of the manuscript without actually touching the book. And he goes on to explain that this case is going to be displayed at the Free Library of Philadelphia, of which Dr. Rosenbach was the chairman at the time, and then it's going to travel the country on a tour And Johnson can have the book in a year. Johnson says yes. The doctor knew how to convince people to follow his lead, and Johnson obviously saw great public benefit in making the manuscript public. So he agreed to do it. It it traveled the country, and it came back to Johnson. And then Johnson had a special storage case built for the manuscript, Together with some other Alice treasures he had purchased from Dr. Rosenbach, and these included the rare 1865 edition of Alice in Wonderland. And this case was not your typical display case or your typical slip case that was used to store books in a library. It was a waterproof case. It was designed to be kept on Johnson's yacht. And it was fabricated in such a way that if the yacht sank the case would float up to the surface. It was attached to a little buoy, and an Alice flag would pop out of the buoy. So you can see Johnson was an unusual person, (laughs) and the doctor, who was a quirky guy himself, was a perfect pair with Johnson. Alice herself, Alice Little Hargraves, becomes famous through this sale. So there is kind of a happy ending for her. She gets the money she needs and she achieves some fame. In 1932, shortly after the sale, she celebrates her 80th birthday and Columbia University invites her to come and receive an honorary doctorate. So she sails to America. She's received like a hero. The news cameras are whirring as she disembarks from the ship. And in movie theaters everywhere, people see the real Alice arrive in America. She receives her degree at Columbia, 
and the next day she travels to Philadelphia to have tea on Delancey Place with Dr. Rosenbach, the man who bought Alice, and Eldridge Johnson, the man who owned Alice at the time. And we have wonderful photographs of the three of them having tea here on Delancey Place. Lovely. Now, people often ask when I tell this story, well, where is the manuscript? Can you show it to me? I'd like to see it. Well, we don't have the manuscript anymore. What happened after Johnson bought it? Johnson died in 1946, and Dr. Rosenbach bought the manuscript out of his estate. And you can imagine him rubbing his hands in glee at the chance to sell it yet again for an even higher price. But something happened. Someone intervened. His good friend, Lessing Rosenwald, who was the heir to the Sears fortune and had been advising Dr. Rosenbach in his later years, in fact, helping Dr. Rosenbach make his own plans to create a museum and library of his own, said to the doctor, listen, the Alice Manuscript is a British national treasure. World War II has just ended, and we couldn't have done it without the Brits. We have to give it back to them. And so he convinced Dr. Rosenbach to give the Alice Manuscript first to the Library of Congress in the United States, and then the Librarian of Congress traveled to Britain to return the Alice Manuscript to the British Library. And that's where it is today, and no one knows that story anymore, which is very sad. It is sad because there's such a, particularly over the last 25 years or so, there's been a real concern in Britain about all these rich uh, American universities scooping up their literary heritage. Yes. Uh, you know, you have to go to Austin, Texas to, to study Virginia Woolf or uh, James Joyce. Those concerns are nothing new, actually. I mean, you think of the concerns about the Elgin Marbles as well, but, yeah. but my view, and maybe it's oversimplified, as long as something lands in a public collection where it continues to be accessible and well-maintained, then it's okay. Yeah. And, uh, and that's true, I think, of the Elgin Marbles. It's true of Virginia Woolf, and it's true of all James Joyce materials. Yeah. There was an exhibition of the Alice Manuscript a few years ago in London, and there was a review of this exhibition in which the reviewer lamented that there wasn't a way to see more of the pages. And he mused in his review, if there wasn't a way to fabricate something that would allow you to see more of that manuscript. And of course, there was something. It had been built 50 years earlier, but long forgotten. So, the Alice where's manuscript... The, where's the machine? Is the machine around anyway? I don't think it survives. Ah, it's too bad. But that purchase and sale is emblematic of the way Dr. Rosenbach did business. He liked to make high-profile purchases. He liked to make very high-dollar sales. He liked to enjoy the publicity that came out of it, but he also liked to ensure that in the end, the object landed in the place where it belonged and where it was accessible. It's pretty easy to... Uh uh, to work for an organization that, uh, that, that uh, the goal of which is to keep his memory alive then. He sounds he's, like a pretty decent guy. He's kind of a local saint for us. Now, he certainly had his foibles. Among which are? Well, he used to boast that he drank a bottle of whiskey a day. And even if we imagine that he was exaggerating by half, 
that's still a lot of whiskey. And his later years were not pleasant ones for him. Uh, health-wise, the effects of so much alcohol really took a toll on his health. So, what about women? Well, um, he certainly enjoyed the company of women. He was, for all intents and purposes, married, although he never formally married. Um, he had what he called a lady friend who lived with him here on Delancey Place, but because she was not Jewish, and he was, the two families could not permit a marriage. Mm. So he was monogamous with her over the years then? for Right. For many years? For yeah. a number of years, yes. No kids, though? No children. Yeah. His later years were very difficult ones for him. Um, first, the business suffered after the Depression. People weren't willing to pay quite as high prices for books and manuscripts. Suddenly, they didn't seem like necessities anymore. Then, the IRS came along in 1935 and started taxing people. And so, people with limitless income no longer had limitless income. And by the 40s, his health was really very strongly in decline. So he was trading on reputation as much as anything at that time. And by the time he died in 1952, he was in very, very poor health. He and his brother decided to move in 1949, very late in life. They had lived at 2006 Delancey Place from 1923 until... 1949. They shared the same house? These are big houses, though. They're big houses, and yes, they always lived together and shared the same house. Mm -hmm. Philip lived on the second floor, which was the piano nobile, the grander of the two floors, since he was the grand gentleman. (laughs) And the doctor lived on the third floor with his books. In 1949, they sold the house at 2006 Delancey, in which they lived for decades, and they moved two doors down to 2010 Why did they move? Well, it was a larger house. It was a grander house. It was a more comfortable place to live. It was a house that had central air conditioning, which in Philadelphia in 1949 was very rare and very welcome to them. But most important, it had an elevator, and they could ride the cage elevator up and down. And cart all those books up and down. And cart the, well, I don't think they were the ones carrying the no, books, no, so no. that probably wasn't a concern to them. But the doctor in 1949 was 72 and not in great shape anymore. His health had really just fallen apart uh, after so many years of drinking so much whiskey. And Philip wasn't in bad health, but Philip was... 86 in 1949. So he enjoyed having a little more luxury as well. Yeah. And so this is where we are today? This is where we are today, and, and I guess the point of that story is that 2010 Delancey Place has become the museum and has become the hi- historic house. What about books that, that our listeners can, can access if they want to learn more about Rosenbach? Well... There are two main areas of collections strength in the modern museum and library that we've built out of their collections, and those two areas are American history 
and English literature, or literature of the British Isles, uh, to be more precise. We have vast stores of printed and manuscript materials from the 15th century through the middle of the 20th century. By vast stores, uh, can you give us numbers? We have a, about 30,000 books that we term rare. Ulysses? Ulysses is a manuscript to us, so that's not included in the rare books, although we have printed copies of Ulysses as well. We have about 300, 330,000 manuscripts. A manuscript to us could be a medieval codex. It could be a letter written by George Washington, or it could be the 800-some pages of James Joyce's Ulysses. So there's lots of different ways to count, but there are quite a number of things that we have, and they span five or six centuries, and every one of them is accessible to any person who wants to see them. You just need to give us a call or send us an email and let us know what you'd like to see, and we'll make it available. Well, you have physically have to come to the building. Well, you can check some of our catalogs on our website, has a good listing of the various kinds of collections we have, and you can figure out what you might like to see. But a great way to plan your visit as a researcher is to come as a tourist and take a tour of the house, and you'll see some of the things that the brothers collected. As, as we like to say, what we preserve is a combination of things they couldn't sell and things they wouldn't sell. You'll discover things you never suspected existed at all, much less in our collections, and all of a sudden you'll be inspired to come back as a reader and see something. So taking a tour is kind of like having an appetizer. It's going to help you plan the main course, and it's going to give you a great appetite for that main course. We've talked about Joyce. What would you consider your strengths in terms of the collection? Well, we could start with James Joyce, and we could work our way backwards. We have the manuscript for Ulysses, which was purchased by Dr. Rosenbach in 1924 for a very low price mm. and almost on a whim. It was offered in an auction, and it failed to reach the expected price, and the auctioneer was willing to sell it to the doctor for a bid slightly under the low estimate. So he, he bought Ulysses for the reserve price. And that was in London? The sale was in New York. Because of the luck? Ulysses uh, had a very interesting history. Joyce had been writing it for a very long time. It was first published in Paris. First published in Paris in a serialized version. Wasn't it, it, wasn't it Shakespeare and Company? The Shakespeare and Company. And they published a journal called The Little Review, which featured segments of most of the novel, but not all of it. And then Shakespeare and Company in Paris published the novel itself in 1922. But even before the novel was published, Joyce had an arrangement with an American collector to sell him the manuscript to Ulysses. Joyce never had enough money to support himself and was always seeking patrons and sponsors to assist him. He made a deal with an American lawyer named John Quinn, who collected modern literature, to sell him the manuscript. So as Joyce would finish writing a section of Ulysses, he would send the manuscript to a typist who would create a text that could then be sent on to the printer. And as soon as Joyce had that typed version, he would bundle up the manuscript version 
and send it off to John Quinn in New York. So by the time Ulysses was published in 1922, the manuscript was already in New York in the collection of John Quinn. Quinn also collected other modern authors. One of his favorites was Joseph Conrad, and he had acquired all existing manuscripts of Joseph Conrad, Secret Agent, Heart of Darkness, Mr. Alon, Lord Jim, you name it, Quinn had it. In 1924, for reasons that uh, aren't entirely understood, Quinn decided to sell his literary collection. And there was an auction held. Dr. Rosenbach was there, of course, and the reason he was there was his interest in Conrad. Conrad was Dr. Rosenbach's favorite author by far. He wanted to buy the Conrad manuscripts, and he did. But he also bought the Joyce manuscript, sold by the same auction house. So Ulysses came... I think quite by chance, to Delancey Place in 1924, and that's where it's been ever since. Wow. Most of the Conrad is also still here. Lord Jim, Nostromo, The Secret Agent, all of these and many other Conrad's novels are preserved at the Rosenbach in manuscript form. One notable manuscript that isn't is Heart of Darkness. Where is it and why? It's at the Beinecke Library, because Philip Rosenbach the doctor's older brother, insisted that he sell at least one or two of the things he had bought. He was spending enormous amounts of money Mm -hmm. building his private collection, Mm -hmm. which he cared about more than anything else. But, of course, the business also had to survive. So Heart of Darkness landed in the Beinecke Library at Yale, which is a wonderful place for it to be. Mm -hmm. If you go back a little bit further, before Conrad, um, you would come to Bram Stoker. We have Bram Stoker's notes for Dracula. There's not actually a manuscript for Dracula. Stoker made very detailed notes and then typed a typoscript of the novel. Mm -hmm. And the Rosenbach Museum and Library purchased Stoker's notes actually after the doctor and his brother had died. So the purchase we made in the 60s, part of our effort to continue to update the collection and build areas of existing strength. So uh, if you're looking at the 20th century or the turn of the 20th century on into the modern era, Stoker, Conrad, and Joyce are three pretty great collections areas. We've also added a number of other very important uh, 20th century collections since the time of the brothers. One of those is the writings of American poet Marianne Moore. Moore was the center of the New York literary scene from the teens until her death in 1972. She was the editor of Dialogue, wasn't she? Correct. And also an important modernist poet. Very important. And she was in touch with everybody who was anybody. Photographers, painters, poets, writers. She corresponded with people like James Joyce, whom she did not like at all. Uh, She corresponded with others. Pound. Pound, Mm -hmm. whom she loved dearly. She was tortured as Pound became sicker and sicker, and she saw him slipping away. There are about 35,000 letters that survive in the correspondence of Marianne Moore, either letters that she received from friends like Ezra Pound or letters she sent to them, because even if she would handwrite a letter, she would type up a copy for herself. The Rosenbach decided to purchase that correspondence in 1969 and acquired it all from the poet, together with her journals and her photographs. And those items 
give a wonderful picture of modernism mm -hmm. in every form in the 20th century. When she died, just a few years later in 1972, she left to us her library. And when you hear that, you think, well, they have the letters already, now they got the books, and we did get the books. But we also got the whole library. We got all of her furniture. Uh, the physical so we, library. We have the books, but we have <laughs> the bookshelves they were on, and we have the tchotchkes that were on top of them, and the sofa that was in front of them, and the lamp that was next to them. And we received all of these materials as a gift, but there was a condition on the gift. We had to reinstall them just as the library had looked in Greenwich Village, where she last lived. And therein lies another very interesting story. She lived on West 9th Street in Greenwich Village. There's only one block of West 9th Street. And for some reason, it's always been a place that has attracted artists and authors and poets and writers. And a young artist and author moved on to West 9th Street a few years after Marianne Moore had been living there. His name is Maurice Sendak. She contacted him. She called him up and said, Mr. Sendak, this is Marianne Moore. He couldn't believe someone so famous would call him. This was in the early 1960s. He hadn't published Where the Wild Things Are. He hadn't published In the Night Kitchen. He hadn't published any books that most people knew about. He was a young, aspiring writer and illustrator. But she knew who he was, and she called him up. And she'd seen some of his stuff in the magazine? or She'd seen some of his books. He had published okay. a number of books already in the 50s, okay. and she knew them. She knew every book that was to be known. So she contacted him. He thought it was a joke. He thought someone was playing a trick on him. So when she said on the phone, Mr. Sendak, this is Marianne Moore. He said, well, this is Ethel Merman, and hung up. <laughs> he ran into her later, just a few weeks or a few months later, and you had to recognize her because she always wore that tricorn hat and the cape. And as he recognized her, he exclaimed, you're Marianne Moore. And she responded, and you're that rude man who hung up on me. They lived two doors apart. and Out of coincidence. Out of coincidence. And with a troubled beginning like that, of course, it was only fated that they would become best friends. So during the 60s, Sendak spent many a day sitting in Marianne Moore's library reading poetry with her. She was using a wheelchair by that time. She was old and... Uh, fairly weak. Mm. He would take her on walks. He would push her wheelchair through various parts of Manhattan. They would visit book fairs. Mm. And Sendak tells a very funny story about visiting a book fair with Marianne Moore and leafing through the books that were in one of the bins and finding one by Marianne Moore and saying to her, why, this is one of your books. I'd, I'd like to buy it and have you inscribe it to me. And she said, well, that would be very nice. I'd be pleased to do that. And a short time later, they're leafing through another bin of books, and Marianne Moore finds a book uh -huh. by Sendak and says, why, this is one of your books. I should like to buy it and have you inscribe it for me. And he says, well, that would be a pleasure. But then Moore turns the book over, and she sees the price. And she says, oh, it's rather dear, and put it back in the bin. So Sendak, to surprise her, went back and bought it, and inscribed it, and he wrote inside it, For Marianne Moore, 
of course. What did she do when she got that? She went back to Sendag and she said, well, you didn't sign your name and you didn't make me a drawing. I want a drawing as well. So he added a drawing and he signed his name in a different color of ink and gave her the book. Now that book, as you'll imagine, is part of our library now because all of Marian books, all of Marianne Moore's books came here. And that's one of the reasons that Maurice Sendak is also here. Sendak first came to Philadelphia in the 1960s. He was involved in a conference about Beatrix Potter over at the Free Library of Philadelphia. And someone there knew of his interest in Potter, but also in other authors like Melville and Keats and Hawthorne, and said, well, you really have to go to the Rosenbach because they have the best collection. He came over and he discovered the Melville and the Keats and the Hawthorne. He also discovered things he'd never expected, drawings and prints by William Blake. And, of course, those kinds of things were the inspiration for so many of his own works. That led him to begin a long relationship with the Rosenbach. And when, just a few years later, his good friend Marianne Moore essentially moved into the Rosenbach, that was a reason for Sendak to think, this is where I belong to. My friend Marianne is there. My friends Melville and Keats and Hawthorne and Blake and Dickinson are also all there. I want to be there too. And so in the early 70s, a time at which he was now very well known. He had published Where the Wild Things Are in 63 and in the Night Kitchen in 1970. He was looking for a place that would house and display his works, and he had the option of going to a very large museum like the Metropolitan, where his work would be shown every three or seven or 27 years. Yeah, not a big deal there. Or he could go to a very small place where he would be one of the centers of the collection. And that's exactly the role Sendak plays here. He's kind of a bridge. You can get from Sendak to any aspect of our collection. You can get from Sendak to Blake, from Sendak to Melville, from Sendak to Moore. So he is a way of linking the sometimes disparate parts of our collection. That's fascinating. And also a it was a mutual decision, obviously. But what a lovely uh, way of tying things up and, and, and a great way of tying our interview up. So I want to go out and see these things now. But before we do that, perhaps you could, uh, you could give our listeners the, the website address. Sure. And, uh, and any other information that they can use to get a hold of you. Well, the easiest way to find us is through our website. And that's also got um, our address and our telephone number and all of the other things you might need to help plan a visit. Our web address is www.rosenbach.org. Rosenbach is R-O-S-E-N-B-A-C-H, rosenbach.org. Very good. I've been speaking with uh, Derek Dreyer, who is the director of the Rosenbach Museum and Library in the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure.